Good morning. Uh, this morning's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is going to be found on page 1147 of the Church Bible. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellowship, the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, <coughs> even hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread unleavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge these, those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will, ju will judge those outside. Expel the wicked, per wicked person from among you. Amen. Thank you, Tim, for that reading. It's a, a very serious passage this morning that we're going to be looking at. And... Uh, it's wonderful that God has provided a saviour for us because we read about these people at Corinth. It's ever so easy to sit here and think, well, fancy that. But actually, at heart, we are all sinful people. And it's just glorious that we can come and meet in the name of the Lord Jesus and sing his praises, knowing that Jesus has come and lived that life we couldn't live and died that death on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And our next hymn um, takes that a step farther. Uh, this is uh, a hymn by uh, a lady. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Um, how we need this? I need this. <laughs> I thank God this morning that there's a great high priest in heaven who lives for me. And he intercedes for me. A great high priest. How wonderful this is for the Christian to know that in Christ, our sins can all be forgiven. And they are forgiven if we trust him. And, uh, but this just reminds us that why we are forgiven. Because Jesus has died. And he stands, in a sense, in God's law court, pronouncing us free because Jesus has been declared guilty on our behalf. So let's stand to sing this lovely hymn. <clears throat> I'm going to ask Stephen to come and Lead us in prayers. Thank you, Stephen. <clears throat> Let's pray together.
creator God, we praise you that you are the great God. We praise you that the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to you. The sea is yours because you made it and your hands formed the dry earth. Sustaining God, we praise you that although you are the great God, that you care for our needs. Thank you that you provide shelter, food and drink to sustain us. Thank you that we do not have to be anxious about anything because you care for us. Just God, we praise you that you hate sin and there is no sin found in you. We praise you that there'll be no sin in your forever kingdom. We praise you that you don't, do not tolerate sin and there is a price to pay for sin. Redeeming God, we thank you that the price of sin is paid for in whole by the blood of Jesus for everyone who turns to Jesus as their saviour. We thank you uh, that Jesus does not lose a single person that you have given him. Thank you that you redeem us, not just as individuals, but into a church. Thank you for uh, our church here, and thank you for our membership of the Worldwide Church. I thank you that we're seeing today how um, church membership is a serious thing and is a thing to be protected. Uh, we pray uh, that we will look after our brothers and sisters and that we will not lead them into sin, uh, but we will encourage and um, constantly point each other to Christ um, as a church here in Camborne. Eternal God, we praise you uh, that your kingdom will have no end. Uh, we praise you that you will wipe every tear from our eyes. We thank you that there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain in your forever kingdom. So, Father God, we pray for those among us who are struggling at the moment. We pray for those struggling with anxiety and depression. Uh, we pray that they will know your presence with them at this time. We pray that you'll give them a special mercy at this time and that you'll comfort, uh, comfort them. We pray that as a church we'll support them and encourage them to keep trusting in Jesus in life's most difficult times. Uh, we pray for those um, who are sick amongst us. Uh, we pray uh, for those who have longer-term illnesses uh, and those who may have shorter-term illnesses. We pray uh, for wisdom, uh, for doctors uh, who may be uh, treating them, um, and we pray uh, that you will heal uh, the sick amongst us. Uh, we pray in line with Church Diary for the Wareham family, uh, we pray to thank you that they are part of our fellowship here. Thank you for the encouragement they are to us in so many different ways. Uh, thank you for their leadership of um, a home group in Upper Camborne. Uh, thank you uh, for uh, everything that they are to us as a church. We pray for them. Uh, we pray that you will continue to grow them in their faith. We pray um, that in the ups and downs of life that they will constantly keep their eyes on Christ and they'll continue to grow um, as members of this church. Uh, we pray for Chris's dad at this time, uh, as he has long-standing illness. Uh, we pray for him. Uh, we pray um, that he will put his trust in Jesus, that he will see his greatest need um, in not, um, not getting uh, better, but uh, knowing Jesus. Uh, but we pray um, that you will encourage Chris um, as he talks to his dad. Um, I pray that he will share the certain and eternal hope he has in Christ with him. Uh, we pray that you will uh, change the heart of Chris's dad and that he will put his trust in Jesus. Uh, we pray for Megs as she's um, going to increase her workload in September with more lessons. I pray that you will um, th you will encourage her to keep her eyes on you, that she will put her trust in you uh, alone in her workplace. Uh, we pray to thank you for Rooted meeting this afternoon. Uh, we pray to thank you for all of the young people in our church. Thank you for how dear they are to you. Uh, thank you that there are some young people who come along um, who put their trust in Jesus at such a young age. We pray that they will become rooted in Christ. Uh, we pray um, for our time together this afternoon. We pray for those who haven't yet put their trust in Jesus. We pray that they will be encouraged by reading your word and they will long to know more about Jesus. And we pray to thank you for the World Cup. Uh, we pray that as we spend more time with colleagues and neighbours, we pray that we'll be able to share our eternal hope in Christ. Not an uncertain hope of a team winning a cup, but our eternal and certain hope. We pray that you'll use this time spent with our community in the building of your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let me add the welcome that Richard's already given you. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, lovely to be together uh, on this lovely day. 
Um, I've heard there's a, there's a football match this afternoon, so I prepared a sermon uh, that's going to last for the next three hours. Uh, so I hope you're all prepared for that and you've uh, set your record button. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, in fact, I was asked specifically to prepare one that was shorter. Um, so we'll see how we get on. Um, but there you go. Um, anyway, uh, as Rich has already said, this is, a, this, is, um, this, is, this is really difficult as we come to this. Uh, as part of our series on uh, uh, mini-series on church, where we've looked at church eldership, church membership last week, and then church discipline, which just kind of flows out of church membership. So um, it's important that we, we look at it, um, and hopefully we'll have some time for some discussion afterwards, some questions, um, if anything's unclear. If I can just ask you, keep your Bibles open in front of you, because um, I'll be referring to that passage in 1 Corinthians 5, and... Um, there's also a handout on your tables, uh, and feel free to jot down any questions you have or anything like that. Uh, just there's a there's a space on the back if you want to do that. Um, so uh, that might help you as we come to the question time afterwards. Uh, let me just pray, uh, if you don't mind. I know Rich has already prayed, but um, for for my own sake, I think I, I need to pray, uh, and then we'll we'll have a look at this passage. Let me pray. Father, we um, do thank you for your spirit and your word. Thank you that they go together and your spirit works through your word. We pray that as we look at this now, uh, that we would know your spirit amongst us and uh, that you would be glorified this morning and that we would make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Shortly after September the 11th, 2001, uh, where the Twin Towers tragically fell, uh, a large photograph of uh, one man appeared in a US newspaper. And this one man, he was sitting on the steps of the US kind of Capitol building, uh, and he was holding an American flag. And the man's name was Mono, short for Hermono. So he was a citizen of Indonesia, but described in one book, as a die-hard American patriot. He loved America. Now, shortly before this photograph was taken, a friend had shared the gospel with Mono. And amazingly, Mono had believed it, and he had put his trust in Christ. And so he was baptised, and, and he became a member of his local church. And so this church, they, they, as we saw last week, what, what was happening was they affirmed him, not just as a citizen of Indonesia, not just as a citizen of the US, but of Christ's kingdom. That's what was, was going on. Now, by all accounts, he was a great encouragement. So one fellow church member said this about him. They said, I enjoyed Mono's enthusiasm, kindness and generosity, on one occasion, he purchased a set of dinnerware just so that he could host a dinner for all the men in the church who had impacted his discipleship to Christ. He loved the church, and the church loved him. Now, however, as time went by, it became clear to some in the church that Mono was working in the country illegally. So he'd lied to the church about his work status, and he was continuing to lie about it to his employer, who was under the impression that Mono had all the right documents in place. Okay, so there's Mono. He's a great encouragement to the church, but he's not living a life of truth. And the question is, what do you do? The church could say, just leave it. Do you know what, this, this guy, he's great. He's a new Christian. And for us to act upon this would be too much of a discouragement to him and to others. In addition, they could say, do you know what, we're all sinners. We all get it wrong. And so who are we to judge? Let's just give this guy some grace. Even more than that, Loads of people have just seen this guy's photo in the front of a US newspaper holding an American flag 
He clearly loves America, and so just let him do what he loves. Just let him do what he loves. Just leave it alone. Now that's what the church could say. That is what the world would say. But what the Bible says, what God says, is the exact opposite. So here in this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, look, the church must respond to sin. Now that's what Mono is doing. Uh, Jesus makes it quite clear that, that as a Christian, Mono is not to break the law that he lives under. He's not to deceive people. Uh, he, he, he's to live for Christ. With, with, with the whole of his life, he represents Christ. And um, so, where it's evident that he's not doing that, the church must respond to him. They must uh, discipline him. That's what we're looking at this week, as I've already said, the topic of church discipline. Now, even as I say that word, discipline, I imagine that all kinds of things come to mind, probably, probably negative things, uh, possibly things we don't want to think about. And it's just worth saying, this is not a pleasant topic. Okay, I don't come here with a great amount of joy this morning. I had a, a, a friend who, who I, I listened to him preach this passage years ago, and he said, do you know what he started to say? He said, you preach some passages because you have to. Because you have to. And that's what we do, we've got to do. We, we need to know about this because we must put this into practice because we're a church that takes the Bible seriously. And we must do this well, by which I mean we must do this biblically. And that's why we've given time to it this morning. Now I want us to think about it in two sections, or, or two questions if you like. So the first is, what is church discipline? What, what is it? What, what does that even mean? And the second is, why must we carry it out? Why must we carry out church discipline? So what and why? We'll deal with each of those in turn. The first is what? what? What is church discipline? What is church discipline? The first thing we see here in our passage is that church discipline is a putting out. It is a putting out. Now, Paul is writing to the church. He opens his letter. He says, this is not just a group of Christians. This is the church. This is a church. Okay? He's writing to the church in Corinth and he's heard about a particular sin going on within the church. And you see the issue there in verse 1. Just have a look at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now look, this of course is a, this is a serious issue. That's what grabs us, isn't it? It's the fact that this is shocking. We're grabbed by the nature of the sin that a man would sleep with his father's wife or is sleeping with her. But look, the real issue here is that the church is tolerating that. They're allowing it to go on. They're even proud about it. And so Paul corrects them and spells out what their response should be in verse 2. He says, and you are proud, verse 2, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship of your church, the man who has been doing this. You need to put him out of the fellowship. You need to put him out of the church. Those who, who, who define themselves as Christians. Now, just before we explain that fully, one thing that says to us is, look, this is, this is just one reason why church membership is really important. Because you cannot put somebody out unless they declare themselves in. Okay, if we, if we don't practice membership, we cannot carry out church discipline in a meaningful way. Only as we know who's in the church can we then put somebody out of the church. Now, look, that's not a pleasant thing, okay? And, it, and it's a very, very serious thing. It is more than just removing somebody from a church directory. Have a look at verse 4. 
Paul says, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now that's the strongest possible way you can put this. So when you put someone out of the church, you are handing them over to Satan. Now let, let me be clear on what's going on here. You don't decide to do that, as in, as in we're not saying, okay, if, 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 we, if we actually did that to somebody, we're not saying this person is in sin and we are deciding to destroy them as if we can do that, what we're doing is we're simply placing them where they show themselves to belong. Okay, so their sin is such that we can see, what we can see is that we can no longer affirm them as a Christian. The way they're living, we cannot say, this person is a Christian. The only thing we can say is that they are part of the kingdom of Satan. And so we just publicly declare that. Now, from there, Paul says in verse 11, you're not to associate with that person. You're not even to eat with them. Now, what he means there is, look, your relationship has changed. So you're a group of Christians. You, 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 are, you, you are living under Christ. And you're now treating this person as a non-Christian. They're under the the kingdom of Satan, as far as you can see. And so you're not associating with them as a fellow believer. And so if we were to put someone out of our fellowship, they, 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 they would be welcome here. Okay, They would be welcome to come along to this service. We would welcome them here, but how we would relate to them would change. That's the way in which you, 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 you don't associate with them as a fellow believer. So our conversation with, with them wouldn't be casual, it wouldn't just be, oh, you know, hi, how you doing? It would be very intentional. It would be saying, look, you need Christ. You need to, point, you need to come back to Christ. And what we notice here is, look, this is a job for the church. Paul writes to the church, not just the church leaders. He says, you, all of you, when you are assembled, when you, as a church, put this man out of the, out of the fellowship, it's something we're all involved with, and it is a, a putting out. That's what church discipline is. Now, if that seems extreme, <clears throat> what we need to know is that the putting out is the end of a process. Okay, and that's the second thing we see under the heading of what is church discipline. It's a process. It is a process. So, if we're... Excuse me a second. If we're familiar with the idea of church discipline, I guess we tend to think about it in the way that we've just seen, the way that Paul describes. We may have seen that happen even in a couple of times in church life, but probably not that often. And that should be the case. That should be the case because church discipline is more than the formal exclusion of somebody. Okay, the more than the putting out. Long before we get there, there should be a series of steps, a process to be followed. And that is what Jesus lays out for us in Matthew's Gospel. So just have a look at um, these words on the screen. They're from Matthew 18. Let me read them to you. Jesus says, If your brother sins... Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, then take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, then tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax tax collector. That's that final stage. Okay, your relationship has changed. That's the that's that you put them out. You you treat them as if they belong to the world and not to the church. So Jesus ends, doesn't he, where Paul starts. 
But before he gets there, there's this series of steps. There's, there's a process. So sin is exposed. Maybe one person will point that out. Uh, no one else may ever know. That is church discipline, as much as the pussing out. Okay, just one person going saying, you're in the wrong. You need to turn back to Christ. You're correcting someone. You're, you're discipling someone. That's where the word discipline comes from. It's just informal. It's not public. Now look, that should be happening all of the time. And much of church discipline won't go any further than that. However, if and when it's the case that the person doesn't listen, then others are involved and you may eventually get to that last uh, stage. But that's the process we follow. It's a process. Now, the obvious question from that is why does Paul go to that final stage straight away? Now, the argument goes, well, it's all to do with the nature of sin. So where we have this big, scandalous sin, where we have a, 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 a marital affair, there should be an immediate putting out. Whereas Jesus, well, he must be talking about sins that are more tolerated. In those cases, we take more measured steps. I don't think that's right. The problem with that is that sin is sin. And the world will say, well, some sins are more tolerable than others. But they'll change their mind on that all the time. That would just change through time what they think is okay and what is not. And even though the world thinks some sins are more tolerated, Jesus doesn't. He simply hates sin. And so the question for us is never, what is the sin that is in front of us? Do we need to confront this particular sin? No, the question for us is when we confront the sinner, does the sinner repent? Now I think that's clear in both passages. So Matthew 18, you see there on the screen that the repeated phrase is if they refuse to listen. Okay, it's the response of the person in question that determines when you take it further. Now that's also the issue with Paul. So if you look, have a look down in your Bibles, you've still got 1 Corinthians 5 open. Just have a look at verse 11. Down there, Paul says, But now I'm writing to you <coughs> that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Now, not only does Paul kind of broaden out the type of sin that would require discipline, so it's not just sexual sin, it's not just the kind of big shocking sins. You've got in there greed, you've got their idolatry. But, but he talks about these people as those who are defined by their sin. Okay, so this is not somebody who slanders once and then is very sorry about it. Paul is saying, not, not saying put them out, he's saying you put the person out who is a slanderer, who is defined as a slanderer, who, who, someone who refuses to listen when you tell them about their slander. Now, what that means is, there, look, there may be some cases, sadly, for us as a church, where something emerges, and, and there, there clearly is not even an opportunity to kind of confront that person. The sin clearly does just define them, and, and we do need to put them out immediately. But most of the time, we follow the gradual process of Matthew 18. Either way, the process and the putting out is not determined by the sin. It is always determined by the response. We're always wanting somebody to turn back to Christ. And if they don't do that, that's when you, well, that's when you, 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 you go to the next step. It's always determined by the response. Now, that is exactly what happened with Mono. Remember the guy I was talking about at the start. So people became aware that he, he, was, he was lying. And what they did is they approached Mono and they said, look, this is not right. 
This doesn't fit with what the Bible says. It's not right for you to deceive your employer. Jesus wants you to live differently. Please turn back to him. He refused to listen a series of times, and so they told the church. And I'll read to you the rest of the church's account for you. Okay, here's what the church said. For months, the church pleaded with Mono to come clean. It tried to help him. It tried to help him financially, and still he refused. Sometimes it looked it as if he would relent, but then he clamped down again. He, he resolved to remain in America at all costs. It began to seem as though he prized America more than the word of God. Finally, with broken hearts, the church put Mono out for refusing to tell the truth. They told him that they could no longer call him a Christian and affirm his citizenship in Christ's kingdom. They instructed him to stop receiving the Lord's Supper. They removed him from fellowship, from membership. It was a sad day for the church. So you see these steps clearly carried out, don't you? Patiently, lovingly, but always looking for the right response. Now, of course, it is right that different people and different circumstances will determine the amount of time and help that they're given. Okay, so the discipline applied to a man who has a sexual affair is going to look very different to that of a a lady who has had a really difficult background and is addicted to drugs. Okay, that's massively complex. And it will just need so much gentleness and patience and time very much unlike other cases perhaps, but every case is different. And we always need to factor that in. We always need to factor what is going on in that person's life. But even as each case is weighed up, the principle remains that we want to humbly and gently confront sin and point people back to Christ. Now look, one of the ways that, that, that you, can, you can help this to happen effectively is actually invite discipline into your own life. Okay, it's very difficult for somebody to approach another member here and say, I see this issue with you and so you need to repent. Now, of course, we should be doing that and we should expect to need to do that because sin remains in us at, at this point. But that becomes all the more easier if, if Actually, I go to someone and say, I know sin remains in me, and I know I can't see myself clearly, so please tell me what you see. I'm saying to you, look, I'm inviting discipline. I'm saying to you, correct me where I'm going wrong. And I need to do that in this local church. So it's fine for me to have friends down the road who speak to me honestly, but only you have the authority to put me out of this church. No one else can do that. Only this local church can. So, look, we've seen what that looks like. Um, The next question we need to answer is, is why? So why why should we do church discipline? Um, Well, here in 1 Corinthians 5, there, there are three answers to that. And the first is, for the sake of the sinner. Okay, so for the sake of the person that is, that is caught in their sin. For the sake of them. So, uh, we've seen Paul's strong language, haven't we, haven't we, in chapter 5, about handing a man over to Satan. That is strong language. But, there is a really loving purpose. Have a look again at verse 5. So verse 5, he says, Hand this man over to Satan... For the destruction of the flesh, here's here's the purpose, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You see, in getting to that final point of discipline, the purpose is not to kind of wash your hands of somebody. It's not to get rid of somebody who, who you feel is taking up time or letting you down. It is in the hope that they would repent, just as we've already said. It's for their sake. At the point that you are saying, look, we can't see that you're a genuine Christian. You won't listen to God's word. The hope is 
that they will see their need of Christ and that they will turn back to him and be saved. Now, wonderfully, <clears throat> that is what happened with Monet. So he was put out of the church, as we know. He went back to Indonesia because he was then uh, asked to leave the country. And having been through the steps of church discipline, he realized his error and he came back to Christ. And here's what he said. He emailed the church. Here's what he said to the church. He said, I left the church with an unfinished sinful matter. And the sad thing is, I took it lightly. I should have learned to humble myself and come to you for reconciliation. But I was too proud and stubborn. And my pride led me to think that God alone would settle the matter without me taking action. Then I went on my own way. And the result? I did not find peace. I wish I could describe to you what kind of relationship I have today with God. It is too beautiful to describe. I've been praying for this reconciliation to happen, but please show me how to do it. And then what I goes on to thank God for the members of the church who put him out. He thanks God for them. So, you see, it led eventually to his repentance. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Even at the last point of discipline, he was saved. Now, whether he, he, whether he was genuinely saved before that or not, I guess we, we don't really know. He was certainly living, he certainly wasn't living, sorry, as if he was. But at this point, Mono has turned back to Christ. And and, and so long as he keeps doing that, so long as he keeps bearing fruit in, in keeping with repentance, he will be saved. This is the point. He'll be saved on the last day, on the day of the Lord, says verse 5. When Jesus returns, says verse 5. And that is why we must carry out church discipline. Where we see someone in sin, we could just say, well, do you know what, let's just leave it because we're all sinners and who are we to judge? But again, the issue is not sin. The issue is not that sin is present. The issue is repentance. That is what the Christian life looks like. It is a continuous turning from sin and trusting Christ daily until the day we die. And if we never call people to repentance, if we're never pointing people back to Christ it is entirely possible for somebody like Mono just to keep doing what they want to do, and then they die. Last year, sometime, we, we read a book as a church called um, Side by Side, and there was an example in there of a, a church worker who one day just left his wife for another woman. And after this kind of whole thing exploded, a number of people said, I could see this happening. I was troubled by this person's behaviour and I wish I'd said something. I wish I'd said something. I wish I'd carried out church discipline. Remember that that's all it is you're correcting somebody, you're saying you're not living as Christ wants you to, you need to repent, you need to turn back to him. And you're doing it for the sake of the sinner, for the sake of the sinner, for that guy who who had an affair, for his sake. And it's more than that, it's for the sake of the church as well. This is the second reason that we see discipline here, it's for for the purity of the church, for the purity of the church. So, we've seen, haven't we, that the church that Paul is writing to, they seem to be proud about the sin of the man who they need to discipline. And he warns them that this is not good for the church. Just have a look at there in verse 6. So he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Now, he's clearly using the idea of yeast negatively. So, as a picture of what will happen to the church. The point is that if they leave this man's sin alone, it will spread. 
Okay, if people affirm what this man is doing, if they're saying, oh, that, well, that's okay, and yes, we say he's a Christian, others will think it's okay to do the same thing. It must be okay to do that as a Christian. And so Paul instructs them further in verse 7. Now, get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new unleavened bread as you really are. For, for Christ, our Passover lamb, he's been sacrificed. You see, they need to put this man out. They need to get rid of him in, in, in that sense for them to be who they are. Of course, they're not literally a lump of bread, but they are new people. Okay, they're new people who have had judgment taken from them and have a new relationship with God. And because of Christ's death, God sees them as, as pure. He sees them as, a, as this unleavened batch. There's, that, that there should be no sin there. And therefore, verse 8, let us keep the festival, not of the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, they, they are to be who they are. The, the church are constantly to celebrate, not the festival at a particular time, although that may have been coming up for them, but the festival of Christ's death for them. They are to keep that, they are to celebrate that. But as they do so, not as people who, who tolerate sin. Instead they do it with sincerity and truth. That's, that's what Paul says in verse 8. Now what that means is not that they're perfect. But they're honest with themselves. Sincerity and truth. So they're constantly, here's a church that's constantly saying, yes, we see our sin, but we see that Jesus has taken our sin for us. And so we turn from it and we trust in him. We come back to God. That's what we celebrate. We rejoice in that. Now, it's worth saying, uh, you know, in a room this size, look, if, you, if you've never done that, if you've never turn from your sin and trust in Christ, please know that, that Christ has been sacrificed for all those who put their trust in him. And for those who do that, their, their, their sin has been taken, it's been dealt with. Now the cross and resurrection means you can do that today. Even if it's for the first time. And then for each of us who knows Jesus, we, we keep doing that ourselves. Paul is saying, celebrate this. Celebrate the fact that Jesus died for you. That doesn't mean you just live how you like. No, you, you look at him and you, you, you go to him and, and you're so grateful for his death that you want to live for him. And you're honest about your sin. You're sincere, you're truthful. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I know that Jesus is taking it. And that's the point here. Okay, so where, where we allow sin to remain and others are allowed to think it's okay, it's not just that that sin will spread, but it also means that people will see no need to trust in Christ. So, do you see, if this, if this guy does not need to repent of his sexual sin, I don't need to repent of my sin either. This guy doesn't need to turn back to Jesus, well... Neither do I. My sin's not as bad as that. You see, soon enough you have a church where Christ died for nothing. He died for nothing, if that's the case. And so you don't just carry out church discipline for the sake of the individual, but it has to be done for the sake of the church, for the sake of every other Christian there. To say to everybody else, actually, we need to keep acknowledging our sin and celebrating Jesus. Now, if the church leaves mono to it because they feel like he's just too much of encouragement, yeah, do you know what? He'll, get, he'll stay there and he'll throw dinners for people and he'll treat people, but actually he is not going to encourage them towards Christ as their saviour. It will just damage the church. 
and the church will become just like any other organization in the world. No distinction at all. Instead, as sad as it was to put Mano out, it's repentance, it's his repentance that encouraged the church the most. So here's what the church said as they heard from Mono. They said, the elders happily recommend that the members of the church acknowledge with thankfulness to God the repentance of our brother Mono, that we formally express to him our forgiveness for his actions towards us, and we publicly renew our expression of fellowship with him and love for him as our brother in Christ. And we do all this with great thanks to God for his faithfulness in his word, in Christ. You see, the church are left thanking God for who? Who are they left thanking God for? Jesus Christ. They make more of Christ. They want to make more of Christ in their own lives as a result. It must be done for the sake of the church. Now I guess one practical application for us is that even before we get to discipline, so even before I go to somebody to say, look, I see this in you and you need to repent, even before I do that, I need to be saying, I'm a sinner. And Christ has taken all of my sin. Do you see, that will only encourage people to to do the same thing. I need to talk about my sin and how I rejoice in the fact that it's taken and how I rejoice in the fact that I'm turning from it and appreciating Jesus all the more, wanting to live for him all the more. Now, where that's not done, if we're all doing that, if we're all talking like that, where that's not done, the need for discipline just becomes clear, doesn't it? And at that point, whether, whatever the outcome, God is glorified. And this is the third reason for church discipline. This is the final thing we see uh, here today. Um, very quickly, we carry out church discipline for the glory of God. So the last, thing we, last reason is for the glory of God. God. So Paul expands on what church discipline looks like in verses 9 to 11. He makes it clear that, that, that verse 10, it is not at all about the outside world okay, we, that we correct and discipline. We, we, we do not, I think that's often how we think, isn't it? We often kind of watch the news or we look at the world and we think they're so horrendous and we somehow think we have this moral higher ground. But no, we're not to judge those outside us. People who do not know Jesus, of course they're going to live as they please because they don't have a king over them. Okay, so so we, we, we cannot judge them, but verse 11, it's those who claim to be a brother or sister in Christ. It's inside the church that we discipline. And so within the church, we're given this judicial role. Just have a look at verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? See, in carrying out church discipline, we are judges. That's how Paul describes us. As we put someone out of the church, we are making a judgment about them. We are saying their profession of Christ is no longer valid. Inside the church, it's inside the church that we're commanded to do what God then does outside of the church. Verse 13. You see, Paul says, God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Judge those inside. See, church discipline is, then is an act of judgment, really is a, is, a, is a shadow of a greater judgment to come. So what we do, we, we judge the person inside, God will judge those outside. Either way, we're foreshadowing what God will do. Now, of course, that warns the person that expelled, doesn't it? It's even stronger here that we hand them not over to, to Satan for destruction, but also to God for judgment. And again, that should warn them. It should lead them to go back to Christ. But more than just warning, as we judge inside the church, it shows everyone what God is like. That he is a God of judgment that he makes a distinction between those who are his people and those who are not. That he acts against sin. 
And as we as a church make those distinctions and we act against sin, it reflects God. Now it does that in a very, very limited way. But here's the point, it reflects him truly. It shows him what he truly is like. And so it glorifies him. The opposite is true when we don't discipline. Okay, so the church might say, Mono is too much of a public figure. We can't possibly put him out. But when his employer realises that Mono has been lying to them and the church have done nothing, the only conclusion that they can reach is that the God of the church is not good and that he is not just and that he doesn't care. The only conclusion they can reach is that he is a small God who just doesn't care. What kind of God is that? That's not one that's worth living for. So the church put Mono out to say, actually, we belong to a God who does care about truth and about justice. We belong to a God who does judge. And in doing so, we reflect him. We reflect him as he is. We paint a real picture of God. You see, we don't do this that we might be popular. We're not trying to attract people. Yeah, that's God's job. God will save his people. We're not doing this for an easy time. We do it for the glory of God. That is why we're here. That is why we must carry out church discipline, for the glory of God. And of course, look, we can only do that with humility, can't we? So it's not that God will judge Mono or the man in Corinth because his sin is any worse. As I've said before, sin is sin. So it's not that we're saying, okay, we're better than you, and so we're going to put you out. No, we all face the same judgment. It's just that those who live and represent God on this earth, those who keep turning back to Christ, are those who know that the judgment has been taken for them. And the more appreciation we have for that, the bigger the cross in our own minds, the more we will mourn our own sin. The more we will mourn sin in the church and we will keep pointing people back to Christ, not the outsider, but those who claim to be brothers and sisters. We keep pointing them back to Christ for his glory. Let's pray.